Dead Bod Rap Pod. The mighty, the small but mighty. We are a tactical fighting force, much like the A team. I'm joined by uh, B.A. Baracus, a.k.a. Nate LeBlanc. Yo. Um, what was the other dude? Hannibal? 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 I'm sorry, I'm older than Isn't you guys. Isn't there a guy who's just called The Face? That would be Dave. <laughs> and we are joined by The Face, Dave Ma. Um, Thank you, guys. I, I, I deracialize B.A. Baracus because <laughs> we're a forward-thinking <laughs> podcast, and he doesn't have to be black. Do you remember when AC Alone and Abstract Rue did their group, the 18? The 18, 18 right. Yes. AC right. yes. uh, something and A.B. Baracus. Baracus, totally. yeah. I love it's it like when a plan comes group. together was, yeah. uh, was, one of those, was one of those joints. It's more of the C team, but uh, <laughs> C minus team. But <laughs> Here all week, folks. Not my favorite project. <laughs> right, right. Love those dudes. Say. Just saying. Dead bod rap pod. Um, yeah, we, we're here, uh, we're not going anywhere and we're going to talk about a subject which, um, my dad mates here think is maybe not even a subject, but, um, <laughs> we just want to clarify. We, we right, need clarification. Right. So Set it up, we'll knock it down. Okay. There it is. There it is. So my, you know, personal meta history of rap I see a clear delineation between when happy rap was acceptable and when it wasn't. And I feel like, I've always felt like, and I've gotten into arguments with with folks about this, that the song Blue Cheese by... uh, By UMCs was was like the high watermark Hmm. of happy rap. That was the last time that a, a, a legit positive... Una, unapologetic happy rap song was cool. So that was 1991. That was 91. That was 91. Um, and I, are we talking about novelty rap? Though? Right, this is, right. Me and Dave got in okay, the weeds okay. yeah. on semantics. novelty rap before you we, came to We today. had a very semantic discussion because semantics. of your to me, <laughs> To me, happy rap is rap that is has a level of, of positivity and is clean cut in such a way that would seem ridiculous now. Okay. That's that's happy rap to me because you could say okay the native tongues were positive sure sure right but not to the degree where we look back on songs and say that's goofy okay so, okay. so not to get like super granular about this but this, I think I've come up with a song from '93 that's unassailably happy rap and is still a classic hip hop hooray I don't know I don't know so that I, so so why doesn't know. that constitute right. happy rap. Because while the chorus is happy, um, he talks about, you know, cheating on women and, you know, he kind of alludes to... What about that makes you not happy? (laughs) (laughs) Nate LeBlanc, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) gentlemen, I am happily married and will remain so for the time being. Um, Hip Hop Array was was happy, but it it was still... Tretch was still being Tretch. He okay. wasn't... He wasn't... If you look at... You compare that to the UMCs. Right, so you're talking joint. about careers? Like the UMCs were a happy rap group? Right, no, no, right. no. Because no, two years later... Right, we talked about came, that. Yes. Yeah, they came out with this really kind of raunchy, like, don't right. put us in that box. I'm like, well, for okay. you, you record a blue cheese. What I do you want? I have one more... Okay. Thing I'm going to try to poking throw out there. To try to poke <laughs> holes in the theory. <laughs> Actually, two, but I don't know okay. if I'll get to the second one. Shoop. Dang, the, 93. Ga- the gauntlet has been thrown down. We're still talking about they're, women they, they're... expressing their sexuality. Okay, okay. Which is a, was a little grind. Salt and pepper always gave you a little bit. You okay, know what I mean? Okay. They started with the grinding. Um, Shoop, 
I don't know word for word, but I believe they are perusing the man meats. Um, <laughs> so that's hey, why uh, I, I again, place it. Not, I place not it. an unhappy occurrence. No, no. Please do. Women. Okay, uh, so if yeah. the parameters is ultra happy, yeah. right? Um, no sort of any lyrical content that that strays from that. Yeah. What about some ridiculous shit like Coolio's Fantastic Voyage? Dang. You guys are bringing the heat. Right <laughs> You're bringing the heat. I had an ironclad theory. <laughs> no, the, it's the more book for clarification. Deal was, was lined up. It was like me and Malcolm Gladwell present the death of Happy Rap. I, I actually, I, we could do the whole segment of us pitching you songs and <laughs> totally. you, you telling us if they fit your your self made okay. up theory. Right. Would, I have one. That would be fun. Okay, Nappy Heads, Fuji's mm. remix. Right. That is pretty happy. <laughs> it is. It is. Which is why when when I hosted this uh, panel discussion with with uh, with Cool Bob Love, the amazing Bobito, um, he hated that record. Mm. Like he hated it because because in a way, and I always felt this way about the Fuji's first record, and I never put it together that it was happy rap. But I was like, this is out of step. The feel and and how they were coming was just it was too squeaky and weird. Um, to me, the first album, yeah, the blended on reality. I, I mess with vocab and Nappy Heads remix. Okay, yeah. okay, personally, okay. I'm no, I'm no Bobito, but I did listen okay. at the time, and those have kind of held up. The, okay, okay. Other, other. Um, okay, let's, let's, holes, let's, holes in the theory. Yes, <laughs> Chance the Rapper's entire career. Damn, Sunday right. Candy. He, he I mean, I guess still, you can say that's gospel. He's still rap. pop. He's still doing drugs. You know, <laughs> shout out to Chet. Still doing drugs, um, but. Yes, so he would be the closest uh, to the happy rap lineage, let's okay. say, because even when he's talking about you know shit like drugs and and popping zans and stuff, there's always a lilt in his voice that's, that's just so happy. yeah. It it harkens back to the days. So, I would be happy too. So is it is it just <laughs> lyrical content and Sunny Sonics? Um, it's it, yeah, it's 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 the uh, it's a posturing. The way I would define it is this. It's a posturing that seems ridiculous now. So PM Dawn. PM Dawn right. is is yes. So that is that is kind of like the the low water mark of okay. happy rap. Because that's like R and B ish too, right? Right. I mean if we're talking kid and play, then yeah. I think there's a little bit more uh, right. clear line with so that. It's like a squeaky cleanness. So it, yeah, yeah. A, a, another yep. part of the thing that I brought up with Nate was is it also like no parental advisory label? Yeah, you know I mean? if you if you could listen to it, which was which was Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince until um, you saw my blinker, bitch. And that's, <laughs> that's Did you guys go back changed. and listen to that? I know we talked about that on another episode. Oh, man. I, I used to love that song. How could you not? Yes. How could you not? Will that will kind of tough my it up. act of rebellion. Right. Um, Is that the only Road Rage anthem? As an <laughs> oh man, I think as far so. As I know. I think so. <laughs> okay, I would love to know where. This for me would be my personal favorite artist of this budding genre if it exists. <laughs> Biz Marquis. Right. Biz Marquis is, like, is, is a clown prince of happy rap. Because he's right? got so, there's, Absolutely. There's okay. a okay. kind of a uh Schadenfreude or whatever in his <laughs> right? music where right? he's he's always like taking it out on the people who doubted him. Right, totally. Sure. Vapors, totally. the whole of song course. is about that. Yes. There's tons of songs. What comes around goes around. But, right, right. But there's Essentially, like a, the whole I Need a Haircut album right, is about kind of right. like flexing on his haters mm -hmm. is how we would say it now. But right. like, yeah. is that happy? I, he doesn't I, cuss. He doesn't cuss. He has a dance. Mm -hmm. It was funny. It's about it's about comedy. And yes, I would I would clearly put Biz Marquis in, the in, happy in, in that category. Now, by 1994, what could Biz Marquis do in the rap sphere, this is what I'm saying. Right. Like there just came a time so where that also, also yeah, commercial Beastie Boys success. records. 
Um, not even commercial success okay. as okay. much as just like seeming like passe. Yeah, does like, it seem okay. Kwame it, and those effing polka dots? I didn't Did even that, think of was this. That the end of I'm, it. I'm I'm hurt right now because that was actually the end. My no. my my year Omega for um for happy rap was off. I apologize. <laughs> it was when Biggie said your life is played out like Kwame and those fucking polka dots. He killed the whole genre. <laughs> Biggie killed happy rap. I'm glad we we had this moment yeah. together to kind of well, now I understand. Decon- what okay, you mean. okay, okay. To kind of okay. deconstruct and Kwame was firmly within. The tradition. Okay. I'm gonna, happy rap. I'm going to take back my unfriend. Uh, so, <laughs> so we're good. But, but let, let me ask you this. And it, it's, it's, it is related to Chance and also the, the fictional rapper who I enjoy a lot, Clark County, um, right, on, right. on the show Atlanta. Um, is that like a, a is, modern happy rapper. Is that possible anymore? Is it? Can, you know, I, I DJ the family parties and there's like two and a half songs that I can play. I know. That, that that kids mess with so i'm mm. like is there is there a lane for it i okay. mean can, can you say a lot of drake stuff is happy if being depressed about paying for those <laughs> apartments makes you happy right. then uh but okay. that's the thing like okay yeah my little cousins come together they say play god's plan so i play god's plan and i'm just like yeah all right we're not cussing but we're, we're okay it's a little border uh, clearly it's pop but it's in the rap section at the record store okay black eyed peas yeah Damn, that's modern, I, I'm really that's just gonna, modern happy. You know rap. what? I'm gonna rework the whole theory. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. I, I, my dislike of Black Eyed Peas, I think, was exactly that. I think mm. it was saying, "Well, you they can't had do happy. They rap. had, they had such a dramatic, a pivot. I mean, it's ridiculous. Totally, they've so, had two careers. Yeah, um, I have to say, the only time I like hearing Black Eyed Peas is after a Warriors win. <laughs> they still play that. I got a feeling after every single win. Totally. I don't okay. know when right, you retire. A song okay. like that. Yeah. I don't think you can. Yeah. I mean, which, not, not we, for a while. Sorry, everyone else in the NBA. <laughs> Sports. Like, we'll oh, do we'll man. do a Jock Jams, yes. uh, Dad Bod Rap Pod at some point. Oh, that nice. is that is one of the uh, the iconic sports ones. Yeah, I guess Black Eyed Peas. It was happening. But I remember going- They rap. This is wrong. Right. I remember feeling like there's something- Like, no, it's kind of like Tropical Quest. No, it's not. No, it right, was. Right. And then they added Fergie. Right. Ooh. That's the delineation. Right? Yoko like Ferg. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's a huge deal. You kind of just go, they, they become a full-on pop act. Right. Okay. Right. At, at that point. Yes. Will I Am is a very interesting, speaking of, of happy rap icons, very interesting, yeah. very interesting char- character. In he doesn't seem of- that happy to me. He's got crazy glasses, though. <laughs> he seems kind of melancholy. Wouldn't you be? After all that time with Ferg? I don't know. I don't know the answer If you to brought that. the world Ferg, could you sleep? Yeah. Yeah, he's like a little upset chihuahua all the time. He's just like Scrooge McDuckin through money, though. Like I know money doesn't make you happy, but she it helps. Yeah, (laughs) up until a certain point, it must. It must. I look at Will Smith and I go, "Happy rap ain't so bad, is it?" Right. I mean, yeah. Say, say what? I mean, did he make? I mean. Are later Will Smith's albums not happy rap? Uh, they're not good rap. Right. <laughs> so there, there's that. But in part, why couldn't Will Smith continue to make records? Like, But he because, did, didn't he? I mean, good, like, records oh. that people took seriously, okay, right? Okay. So you're, a, you're, the problem with this genre is that it's incredibly subjective. Totally. So what you're do you ta- mean? You're talking like, about the I shit. Decide. You, you've decided Will Smith's <laughs> went one of the most popular records of the 20th century uh, millennium, right, or whatever. Will, like, millennium? 19th. You know if this you by name? Record sales. 
I worked in a record store. As did I. Maybe I got out that before, was a before huge the new record, dude. Yeah. So like huge. it or not, though, I mean, Jiggy With It was a huge hit. Huge hit. And dude. when somebody oh. says getting Jiggy With It, you don't cringe in your inner in your of inner course, core? Of course, of course. I have a lot of older white relatives yeah. who are <laughs> still getting Jiggy With <laughs> yeah. It, raising the roof. Oh, my goodness. Tag team? Back Anyone? Again. Back again? Uh, yeah. Happy rap? Anyone? Is that? That's that's a bass song. Yes. Yeah, happy bass. It's, it's, it's verging on your, uh, if it has sexual content, it's not happy right, rap right. thing. Okay. So no I'm not remembering content. the exact wording of everything, but just bass music Tag as a genre. They're doing this sanitized version of bass music, but it's bass were. music at the end of the okay. day. They're so back that, again, okay? Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Quotes. They okay. were front again. Watch out. <laughs> What was the one about running trains? Come on, ride the Come train. On, ride but the that train. Was, uh, I think that... it's ride the train, not run the train. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, yeah. You being problematic, man. I thought it was about transit. I know. What's wrong I think, with you? I think we're getting our day jobs uh, confused now. <laughs> All right. So, so to recap, my happy rap theory is Swiss cheese. There's mad holes in it. Um, but I have to say, a lot of good music in the kind of rubric that we're talking right, about. There's right. it, Not everything has to be... Morose, which yeah, is no, I think yeah. where it, we're yeah. going with yeah, this. Yeah, right. it, it doesn't because you know, like a Chub Rock, right? Like, I was gonna say his, I, that's his my cut. Happy rap icon, right? Right. Happy, happy rap <laughs> icon. Totally. If it's a thing, totally. No, <laughs> yeah, he'd be at the top of the fan. genre, and, and it was he can it, rhyme. It yeah, was totally. dope. And Hitman Howie T. Hitman Howie T. Underrated. Yeah, I want to bring him up for our producer centric upcoming episodes. Yeah. Okay. Chub Rock. Okay. Man, so um, I, I guess I just want to get what the metrics are for. Yes, then for, we can like dive in deeper. Yeah, for, like what, for what are the rap. what are the good right. kind of things in the genre? So I'm I'm gonna go back. You know what? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do some more study. Yes, I think I've talked about this, but I think he fits. I'm a, kind of a weirdly big fan of Maestro Fresh Wes. Mm. Okay, he was the premier '80s Canadian rapper. Yeah, and he's got a yeah, song called "Certs Without the Retzin," which is just like. That song couldn't exist anymore because, like, one, certs I don't know if certs it, exist. Yeah. Yeah, like You're it. certainly not getting into the made-up flavor compounds that made it, <laughs> like, this proprietary but, thing. He's like, he has this whole thing about how it's not a cert if it doesn't have the rets in. It's kind of like a but referendum on... Jeez. Uh, the composition of breathments. Yeah, but on like authenticity. Got you. Essentially. Got you. It, perhaps referendum is a strong term. But you know what I mean. <laughs> so I think if we're if we're going deeper on this, I would like to go back and listen to some of my Maestro, Maestro Fresh, Fresh West Okay. And see okay. if he's a happy rapper. Okay. Fresh get him on the phone. Uh, they're fast rappers. They're fast I don't know rap. that they're particularly happy. happy. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so that it should inspire us to dig deeper though. It, it, it has to. Yeah. So I, I'm going to do some Maybe more we'll research. Yeah, we should, oh. we should. I think we should get on, on Spotify soon. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, no. I'm I, just I think some moves are being made towards that direction. Yeah. So we, we're going to, we'll go ahead and give you a happy rap mix one of these days. Um, I'll work on my theories of, of my Chomsky theories of happy rap and uh, <laughs> the debate will continue dad bod rap pod
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with uh, one of the premier journalists, rap journalists that I've looked up to, uh, one of my mentors. He's also a renowned author, as well as professor, as well as DJ. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Oliver Wang. Welcome. Hey, my pleasure. Cool, man. So, you know, we wanted to just sort of start off and transition. Uh, this is a little bit Bay Area centric, but you know, what were some of your favorite cuts, early Bay Area rap cuts from back in the day? Oh, I, I mean, let me think about this. <laughs> I should I mean, have prompted the, beforehand. No, no, no. The first one that really comes to mind because I was so obsessed with it the first time I heard it was That's When You Lost by Souls of Mischief. Mm -hmm. And I mean, by the time that came out, I'd already been living in the Bay Area for a while, but. Um, so just quick background. I moved to the Bay in 1990 to go to college at Cal. Mm. And a lot of my hip hop listening at the time was very, very New York East Coast centric. So there probably were a few barrier um, acts that would enter into the playlist. But it was really that moment where Dell and hieroglyphics really blew up in what we're talking about, 92, 93, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, that I really began to pay attention to stuff that was happening more locally. Um, and I remember hearing, I want to say I heard That's When You Lost, I either heard it on a KALX show, and I, I was a longtime DJ on CalX, but this probably was before I had my own show, or I almost certainly could have heard it on the wake-up show. Mm. Um, but it would have been one of the two. There's, there's no place else it would have been besides one of those two radio stations. And it was something about the bass line and the way that the mm. song starts. And the bass, that, that big, big, big kick doesn't really come in right off the bat. It's sort right. of, I don't know what, eight, maybe 16 bars in. And I just remember hearing it and thinking, what is this? I just want to hear this again. And I'm sure I probably called up um, either one of the mixed shows on Calix or, or maybe on, um, on uh, KML to, uh, to request it. And yeah, that was really, that, 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 thing, that stands out very, very uh, clearly to me for for something that's over 25 years ago. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, we've been, uh, you know, obviously uh, following your work for a minute. Um, and your one of your current endeavors is the awesome Heat Rocks podcast. And which, you know, for listeners who aren't uh, aware, it's, you know, you guys have guests on who um, speak about basically their favorite album and sort of dissect it. And so I wanted to flip the script a little bit. If it were you, what would your album be? Oh. Uh. Well, the one that comes to mind immediately, and I think partly because we've never discussed um, any De La albums on mm. the show yet, we, oh, okay. we're about we're roughly about thirty-five episodes in so far, and it would probably be Three Feet High and Rising. Yeah. Um, not necessarily because I think it's the best of their of their albums, nor is it necessarily my favorite. But De La's that album, Three Feet High and Rising, was in many ways. Um, what got me into hip hop. So oh, even though okay. I had heard it prior to that, um, you know, my the, a story I've told to others before is that my introduction to hip hop really came around, I think, 86 or 87, where a middle school friend of mine gave me this cassette tape that had License to Ill dubbed on one side and Raising <laughs> Hell on the other. <laughs> and I loved, I loved both those albums and I played that tape to static, but I was <laughs> so young and so kind of musically ignorant that mm, I didn't right. realize that 
this was a genre, and therefore, if I wanted to hear other things that sounded like this, I could go out and find more music like that. Right. And it wasn't until really three years later, uh, or maybe two or three years later, until Three Feet High and Rising came out, that um, I heard the album, fell in love with it almost instantly, and that put me on the path of, I just want to hear whatever else sounds like this, I want to hear that stuff. Mm. And this is around the time that I discovered The Source, it's around the time that I discovered K-Day, which... I'm embarrassed to say, as someone who grew up in L.A., um, I didn't discover K-Day until really, I think, the last maybe one or two years of its existence. Huh. Well, in that era, when it was still on AM 1580, it has since come back as an FM station. But the original K-Day era, I didn't discover it until really late um, in, its, in its history. And, you know, there are many things that I regret not knowing when I was younger and not listening to K-Day much earlier on uh, certainly would be up there. Okay, okay. All right, so so kind of switching gears a little bit, um, you wrote a book, Legion of Boom, um, yeah. about the Filipino American um, DJ mobile DJ movement here in the Bay Area. Is that something that yep. you that you knew about coming up here, or is it just you went to Cal and was you were immersed in the culture that way? Well, it certainly has to do with me coming up to the Bay Area and living here in the 90s. And certainly, if you were had any interest in hip-hop and DJing in particular, and you were living in the Bay Area in the 90s, you would have known about Qbert and Mixmaster Mike and Apollo and Shortcut and all these guys. Because, I mean, these were the best DJs in the world. They all came from the Bay Area. Right. They were uh, almost all Filipino, which is... A, a, a you know a phenomenon that a lot of people were like what's what's up with that and right. I had the opportunity once I became and got involved in music journalism uh, this is by the mid nineties uh, I had the opportunity to interview these guys and in asking them about how they got their start the common thing about all of their origin stories was that well before I got into scratching I was part of this mobile crew and they all came from different mobile crews right. so Cubert uh, for example. His crew was called Live Live Style Productions. Um, uh, Apollo came from Unlimited Sounds, which was one of the big, big Daily City crews. Um, Mike was High Tech Sounds, was, was his crew. And so I realized that as much had been written about the Scratch DJs, so obviously the Scratch Pickles, you know, the Beat Junkies down in L.A., um, even smaller barrier crews like the Bulletproof uh, Scratch Hamsters, who... I think I want to say they helped spark off the ridiculous names for your DJ crew. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, they, they later renamed themselves the space travelers. Right. And I just thought nothing could ever be better than the bulletproof scratch hamsters. Like, <laughs> right. you, y'all should have just stuck with that. Truth. Um, but in any case, a lot of it written about scratch DJ history. Uh, I knew nothing about the mobile DJs. And mm. the more I looked, the more I realized there had almost been nothing written about it. Um, later on, I realized Davey D, right? I'll, I'll right. shout that to, to, to Davey D. He had written something about it for one of his newsletters uh, sometime in the mid-late 90s. Right. Um, I didn't read it at the time, and that probably was the only thing ever written about that whole scene, which was primarily right. in the 1980s, mm. for the duration of the decade. Wow. Um, and I think both as a scholar and as a journalist, this discovering something that no one else seemingly had documented or studied, it was just one of those light bulb moments where I'm like, well, maybe I should do this. And the more that I began talking to people and digging beneath the surface, the more 
enthralled and exciting it was to work on. Um, and a big part of it, too, in terms of timing-wise, is one of the uh, people involved in this scene since the early 80s, a uh, woman uh, named uh, uh, Melanie uh, Kaganaw, now Melanie Kaganaw-Kong, she, as part of, I think it was maybe an MFA project, it was some kind of master's project, she put together an exhibit about the mobile scene, mm. uh, I think at the San Mateo Historical Museum, and this would have been around 2000 or 2001, and the timing of it was such that I was already beginning to talk to some people about this stuff, but I wrote a story about the exhibit for the San Francisco Bay Guardian. And in turn, Melanie invited me to host a, to moderate a panel at the museum that had like, I don't know, eight or nine OGs uh, from the scene. And that really was the first set of interviews. And then from there, I just followed up with the people on the panel, with people in the audience, uh, and things just kind of snowballed from there. Oliver, this is super nerdy, but I was there. <laughs> I, I went to that. I was uh, going to UC Santa Cruz at the time and kind of like did an American studies major so I could study hip hop. And uh, mm -hmm, I went mm -hmm. to that opening at the San Mateo Museum and I wrote an article about it and I complained about the food because I was like, if this is a Filipino <laughs> mobile DJ thing, like where is the pancit and what's up with this this uh, like spinach dip? And then uh, our contemporaries who like kind of came up in the Filipino mobile DJ scene are the finger bangers are now the bangers as is slightly more socially acceptable. So um, we kind of grew up with them and going to the zebra battles and kind of oh, stuff like man. that in the right. Bay Area. So um, I was kind of there. at, And anyway, the article ended up getting posted on their website in its earliest iterations. But it's just funny. I, I hadn't thought about that day in a long time. As I remember, mm -hmm. the, um, the exhibit was kind of weird. It's like there'd be a big speaker in a glass box. It was just like, how do you represent physically this, this culture? It's like, yeah. um, anyway, I just wanted to tell you I was there. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, did, you didn't make the book, but we'll, yeah. I think Nate, Nate will get over that. Do, do you feel like, um, because you're talking about a very specific um, subgenre in hip-hop, right? The, the kind of Filipino-American contribution and saying that you're literally like one of the only people to write a book about it. Do you feel that, um, that, that, Filipinos and maybe Asian Americans in general get their, you know, just props for their contributions to the culture? Well, let me back up and just make something from my perspective clear, which is sure. that to me, the book that I wrote, it certainly intersects with hip hop, especially because a lot of these crews by the end of the 80s and certainly by the 90s, hip hop had become the dominant um, genre they would have right. on their playlist. And a lot of those, those, those later crews identified very strongly with hip-hop. But the history of mobile DJing in the Bay really precedes the national explosion of, of hip-hop and its spread out West. And so for a lot of the kind of pioneering crews who would, were the primary focus of my book, hip-hop was something in the rotation but they didn't identify with themselves. They didn't think of themselves as hip-hop DJs. They mm. just thought of themselves as hip DJs that mm. happened to play rap music sometimes, but they played freestyle dance music. They played right. funk music. They played right. disco. And so um, I think a lot of people think my book is a, is a history of hip-hop. It's really, it's not. It's a history of, of a scene. It's a history of a community of DJs in which, again, hip-hop plays a role in it, but it's not really a hip-hop story, at least okay. not from my mm. perspective. With the exception of because all of these, the, the, the people I mentioned prior, your Q-Birds, your Mikes, you know, right. Apollo, et cetera, because they all got their start in the scene 
and then branched off to do their own thing in turntablism, that's where the kind of connected tissue between hip-hop and the mobile scene is. So there's definitely like a direct linkage to that, but the history of the mobile scene to me really actually kind of stands on its own in a particular way without having to be tied into kind of a broader narrative about hip-hop. Now, to your question, though, yeah, I do think that this is something that probably doesn't get the kind of recognition that it deserves. And just to give a a very contemporary example, um, I have not seen this myself, but at the Oakland Museum right now, there is apparently a pretty significant exhibit about Mm hip-hop looking at, um, I'm assuming, the Bay Area. And I've had multiple people come and tell me how come there's nothing about Filipino DJs in here? And all I can say is, well, I haven't seen it and no one consulted me, so I don't know. But <laughs> okay. it does seem, it seems really strange that you would have an exhibit in a museum in the Bay Area and that's not part of what you include in there because, Philip, yeah, they're an indelible part of right. Bay Area DJs. I've, I've heard the same sort of criticism about that. Which, uh, I'll, I'll provide a little bit of context. Uh, the curator, Adisa Banjoko of, of uh, Hip Hop Chess Federation, um, I haven't seen it. Apparently, I'm in it and not like deservedly <laughs> so, but Adisa's a good friend of mine. I was interviewed for it. Huh. Um, Mike Realm played a big, uh, a big mm-hmm. part, a big part in it, right? In terms of uh, of recording people's video interviews and then mm. and then mixing them. So I'm not. I haven't seen it yet either. So I'm not sure if, if maybe he's not front facing. But um, that's oh. a very very interesting query, and I will put this to Adisa. Right on. And I will. <laughs> right. Because we're about building building bridges here on the Dead Bob Rap Podcast. <laughs> sure. And again, I, you know, not having seen the exhibit, and I know Adisa through just, you know, various stuff. Right. Um, I, I'm not, I can't speak directly to this. I can only right. pass on what people have mentioned to me. Sure. Um, I think just broadly speaking, though, this is, it's a story that, it's not like it's completely obscure. And if you look up, you know, of the handful of, of books that have been written about the history of, of DJing in, in the U.S., or really globally, um, I think some some of the books out there do take pains to kind of to identify the particular role of Bay Area Filipino DJs within that. Um, but I don't, by no means, do I think that it's kind of this universal understood thing. Um, least of all for a younger generation now, who are now. I mean, the scene that I was writing about was again primarily in the 1980s. You're talking about stuff that's now 40 years gone. So, right, right, yeah. Right. Yeah, good point. Um, I was wondering, we're going to switch it up a little bit. I think um, often on this show, we've talked about the role of rap journalism and um, how it's changed over the years, where you had a few kind of gatekeeping publications earlier, and now it's incredibly diffuse, where there are so many different little outlets, but none have a huge audience. And I guess I wanted to ask you about the fundamental issue that keeps coming up for us. Is rap criticism kind of um, able to get past the need to maintain access to the artists? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I have loose thoughts partly because I'm definitely not in the trenches in the way that I was, Sure, you know, 20 years ago or so. And I think that the game has certainly shifted because hip hop in general has shifted. And, um, it's funny. I was just at an event uh, last night where I was in conversation with um, with Brian Cross, B plus, the mm-hmm. photographer, um, and one of the people in the audience was Sheena Lester, who was a longtime uh, editor at uh, Rap Pages, uh, kind of in that vital period of, of Rap Pages in the '90s when it was sort of the West Coast competitor with the Source, mm-hmm. and she was asking us a question about whether the 
the role and the value of being a, a rap journalist have changed, um, that it doesn't seem to be necessarily as driven by advocacy in the same way that it was mm. um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I think that's true. It, and I think a lot of it is because hip-hop, socially, culturally, politically, economically, whatever, it's not in the same position now in 2018 as compared right. to 1988 or 1998, for that sure. matter. And I do think that, I mean, again, I'm, I'm being very meandering here with my response, but the question about access, I think that one of the big things that's, that's become inverted is that at a time in which there was only a handful of publications and that print publications, so magazines like The Source, like Rat Pages, like Earth, where I, I cut my teeth, these were, there's only a handful of them. And so as an artist, if you wanted any kind of media exposure, these were the outlets that you as the artist or as the label or as the publicist had to negotiate. Right. Well, that's all flipped now because those print publications, most of them are gone. Right. And now you have a situation where Artists have, through social media partially, they have control over their own narrative and how mm -hmm. they want to present themselves. Mm -hmm. So just to use a really, really obvious example, someone like Kanye can get his message out via Twitter, for better or for worse, right. much <laughs> faster, much more powerfully than sitting down to, let's say, do a cover story with, I don't know, GQ or something. I mean, right. not to say that that GQ story isn't going to help him, but he can jump the line, so to say. And I think that because of that balance of power has shifted, it is, I, you know, it, artists have more leverage now. And I yeah. think that if I was an up-and-coming writer, I would probably worry about access in a way that's somewhat different, at least, compared to um, when I had the imperator of, you know, being a, a writer for the source and, and asking for an interview like wow. that, that opened doors in a certain way. Sure. Uh, whereas I don't think those kinds of gate, those media gatekeepers exist um, anywhere near to the same degree these days, because again, the game has changed. Cool. So kind of to follow up, did you, did you ever write a negative review or kind of an unflattering portrayal and have it come back to you at all? <laughs> I think uh, the well, story is going to be the uh, Thess One story. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I have been dissed by name on at least, at least three different records. Wow. I think four if you count, like, some demo thing that, um, that Gene Gray put out. Uh, I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Well, there was the one that was actually on an, an official album. And I feel like there was another one that she did that was... More like, I, I forget, like I sort of lost track. And <laughs> I, I've always joked with, with, I've always joked that if Ego Trip ever updates their book of rap list, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, petition really hard for them to include a category of journalists who've been dissed by name because I know I'm going to be number one. Um, so to answer your question, yes, negative, I, I have. There have been dust-ups in regards to negative reviews, though, number one, I don't feel like I wrote very many of them, mm. and obviously you might ask other people and they have a different perspective, but I was never someone out there that was trying to, uh, you know, if, if for, for your listeners who have seen Ratatouille, Anton Ego, the food <laughs> critic in there, who seems to delight in tearing restaurants down, right. I was never that guy, like right. not remotely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but occasionally, yeah, I wrote stuff where I was being, from my perspective, constructively critical, and not everyone um, felt the same way about it. And yeah, I caught a little bit of heat. Again, in the grand scheme of things, it's 
it's it, it was nothing major at all. Right. And in one case, as you were mentioning, Fess one from people under the stairs. Um, me and Fess are really good friends now, which is really <laughs> funny for considering that him and Double K, you know, jokingly, but at the time I wasn't entirely sure how much of a joke it was. <laughs> you know, was ready to shoot me effectively. So um, it's it's sort of funny how things play out in that way. Um, but the thing is, I'm not trying to be overly generous to the people who dissed me, but it's not a coincidence that all of them were um, what we would call indie rappers, right? These right. were not people on, on right. major labels. Um, and so what little press that you could get as an indie rapper, for the mm. reasons that I was stating before, mm. it just magnified the sense of you know people feeling they weren't being supported and that right. you know they're not going to get into something like, let's say, The Source or Double XL. Um, and therefore, what, what does get published, whether it's an herb or whether or not it was on my own website or something, this is something that, that folks latched onto and, and which could take personal to, to some degree. Um, you know, I, I suspect these days, I mean, these days, as an artist, you got to deal with Instagram and Twitter haters right. far more commonly and, and <laughs> than a writer. consistently right. than worrying about like what someone says about you maybe in the New York Times. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I, to me, I, I think it, it, you know, if people if people had concerns around negative reviews twenty years ago, I can't imagine what the anxiety must be like today because you would just be inundated with hate left and right just because of, of the, the reach of social media. For existing on Twitter. <laughs> just just for being. Right. So so how does that affect, like, can we have constructive hip-hop critique? Because I feel that a lot of journalism, for kind of the reasons that, that Nate alluded to, um, falls in. I, I see a, a lot of puff pieces, and then there's a lot of, here's a think piece about why this person is the worst person in the world, actually. Um and not, I don't know, maybe that's my personal take, is there isn't a lot of honest critique about the culture, and I, I, and I worry that, that somehow we're missing being able to actually analyze the records of, of the, or the culture at this moment. Well, uh, to me, I think that, yeah, I think that when there's definitely room and a lot of examples of, of smart, uh, constructive criticism out there, though I think part of what you were alluding to is that we live in, in an era, oh God, I hate using cliches like that, but we live in an era where, <laughs> you know, for anything that happens. So just to go back to the example of Kanye, he opens his mouth on Twitter for a few days in a row and it, it launches a thousand think pieces that get yeah, published in right. all these different venues. And so, I mean, to me, that is constructive. Well, I, don't, I haven't read all of them, but I'm assuming at least some of them were constructively critical. The difference is, is that they now exist on dozens, hundreds of different platforms. And so it's, it, it, and after a while, you introduce enough voices and it just blends into static, right? You mm. can't separate the signal from the noise. Um, and for better or for worse, back in the day, with a much more finite group of, of outlets, it made it easier for people to be reading the same stuff simply because there wasn't any other option than the, you know, four or five publications that might be out there. I think in a, I think to the extent that from a writer's point of view, you can find, it's much easier to find an outlet these days. That's, that's a plus. Of course, the main difference is, well, one of the main differences is that it's much harder to get paid the same rates that people <laughs> need to earn. That's, that's, you know, True that. that's, that's, that's the trade-off is that great. Anyone can get started as a writer welcome to the world, just don't expect to get paid for it. Um, it's not like the pay 
it's not like the pay was incredible, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but at least it was, it was there, right? You know, you, you wrote for the source, you could get a buck a word. That was kind of the right. standard rate for them or, right. or for a place like Vibe. Um, you know, find me, show me any place online that pays a buck a word. Uh, right. Even Pitchfork, which is like the dominant player, I don't think their rates are quite that, that generous. And, and I think people consider Pitchfork to be pretty decent, all said, but decent by internet Standards, right, right, right. Um, Oliver, I want to switch um, gears a little bit. You mentioned um, your website, and you know it's 2018, and you know people don't seem to read blogs as much. But I want people to know about you, about our subject. So I want to. Can we quickly touch about just sort of the intersection between SoulSides.com and you being a record collector and a DJ, and sort of what about that? Um, you think is reflected through your work with say like NPR, the multiple outlets that you work for? Well, if there's any common thing that unifies the different things that I do and have done around music. So whether that's as a writer, as a scholar, as a DJ, et cetera, it's that I just like sharing things about music. And um, the way that I got started with Soul Sides as a blog, and this was back in what, 2000 and... Oh God, 2004 is when I, I sort of, when it kind of morphed into the, the form that people um, came to know it as. Mm -hmm. um, the way that that happened was I'd been doing college radio at CalEx for 10 years. I think my first official show was around 94. And then by 2004, I just got, I just got burnt from doing a weekly show of, of three hours. And without consciously realizing it, even though I was tired of doing radio because of just the amount of the sheer amount of work involved with it, I still wanted an outlet to be able to talk about music and share music. And because audio blogging back then was beginning to, to, to kick off, it was, I think, on a subconscious level, the natural transition. Because now, you know, I, I didn't have to spend three hours a week, you know, on this thing. I could write maybe just a post a day. Right. But it was filling that void of letting me share stuff about the records or the songs that I was listening to. Um, and that became really, really fun to do. And I think the other difference too is back when people actually still read blogs because this is before, <laughs> before Facebook, before Twitter and, and all that is I would have these interactions with people in my comments section, whereas doing radio and I love, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, love, love doing radio but especially with college radio, you never know if anyone's listening. You can go three hours. No, nobody's calling in with a request or to, to ask a question, what have you. It's just, you know, your signal is going out into the ether. And with blogging, because I've had those interactions, I'm sort of more of an extrovert. And mm. I get energy, if you will, from, from those kind of from interacting mm. with other people. And, and so blogging really helped propel me in terms of it made me want to write more and share more because people were giving something back right. and not coincidentally once things like facebook and twitter came along and displaced that energy in those conversations because they all shifted away which is when blogging begins to, to die um it's also around the same time that i began losing interest in it because i wasn't getting that kind of feedback and i, I was also just directing a lot of my energy into those same social media sites. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, you mean you touched a little bit about, like, what, you know, the, the impetus to, like, share and stuff. What Do you have a cut right now or a record that you'd like to share? And then, you know, what we'll splice it in later. But, you know, uh, what record right now are you listening to? 
um, let me see, let me just turn my head to the right <laughs> in, in my new arrivals pile. Um, I mean, one thing that I got in the mail the other day that I am really into is um, Opatinian Records, which is the yes. sort of retro soul label out of Finland, um, originally started um, by uh, the Soul Investigators, um, who did a lot of great albums, still mm -hmm. are making music with Nicole Willis. And um, they, I think the first time they put out a single by this duo, they're known as Pratt and Moody, mm -hmm. and they're a pair of Finnish artists who are working with Cold Diamond and Mink, who are the musicians. I think Pratt and Moody are the vocalists, Cold Diamond and Mink are the musicians, mm -hmm. and they have a new single out called Words, 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 and it's very much a sweet soul, uh, you know, mid-late 1960s style, uh, and Kenyon for, I mean, for well over a decade now, have just nailed a particular soul aesthetic right, that, 100%. Um, that you hear in all the releases. And so, uh, this new Pratt Moody single, I think, is, is great. It's one of the best things I've heard off of Timmy over the last year or so. And th that's saying a lot because they've been putting out a lot of great music. Right, lots of heat. Yeah. Cool. That leads me into, I wanted to ask you about your comps that you put out. Uh, gosh, it's been a while now, but uh, your comps on Zealous mm -hmm. Records, the Soul Sides compilations. Could you kind of talk about how that came together? And if, as like a record collector, did you always want to make a record kind of thing? Yeah, that was a real just fortunate opportunity. Um, at the time in which Soul Sides was beginning to gain attention, and it helped that I was not necessarily the first wave of audio blogs, but I was certainly part of the big spike in the second wave of them. And so uh, partly because I had good relationships with other music journalists, other music journalists myself, uh, Soul Sides got written up by a bunch of places. And so that put it on the radar of the folks at Zealous Records who approached me and said, hey, have you, would you be interested in helping to curate a, an anthology, a compilation? And, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily an opportunity that I was actively seeking. It was certainly an opportunity that I instantly said, yes, let's do this. <laughs> and then learned, as many, many people do when they're working on something like a comp, that you can have the best master list of songs imaginable. <laughs> the, the, the real question is, what can you get cleared? And so, um, with the first with the first volume, which really didn't have a any theme at all, it was really just like songs I like. Um, I think we probably started with a master list of at least twenty plus, and then gradually had to whittle it down, and, and we've lost songs because we just couldn't get clearance on it. Um, I don't even, to be honest, I don't even remember what was on that original master list. I probably have it in, in somewhere in, a, in an email, but, um, but that was it. It was sort of, it was, it was very, not, I wouldn't say random, but it was not really well thought out by me in terms of, I wasn't trying to think, all right, let me, how can I thematically organize this? Or how can I tell a story through these songs? I mean, I certainly put time into thinking about the sequencing in terms of, I knew what song we wanted to open with. I kind of, I thought about that aspect of it, but it wasn't, it was not the most dwelled upon comp in terms mm. of thinking about how do all these pieces fit. It really was, here's, I forget how many songs was on the first volume, I think it was maybe 12 to 15. Mm. And this, it was really just, here's a dozen plus songs that I, I've listened to of late and are really into, and I want you all to listen to them. Yeah, right. um, Yeah, I'm not saying this to pat myself on my own back, but when I go back and look at the track listing, the two thoughts that always come to mind is, 
if I were to do this again, I don't know if I would pick all of the songs on here. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I also think, but you know what? My taste was actually pretty decent. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm making myself props for that. Like, I had I had good taste then. Like, these are most of these songs sold up pretty well. Yeah, mm -hmm. agreed. Um, of course. And then after the first volume, they, they came back and said, hey, would you want to do another one? And this time I did have a theme, which was cover songs, um, which has always been a just a, a collector's obsession of mine in terms of interesting cover songs. But that volume, I actually don't like most of it. And I, I, you know, I, I think part it, partly it's, I think it had partly to do with the songs that we could clear right. and the and the ones that we ended up with were not necessarily the ones I absolutely in hindsight would have wanted to go back and, and, and program. But I think also it was just that my cult, because I was curating this out of my collection, my collection of cover songs wasn't as good then as it is now. And right. so Always I would adding. probably redo, I'd probably redo, I, I would guess, at least three quarters of that if given the opportunity now. Very interesting. Mm. Uh, appreciate the insight. This is so nerdy, and I'm sure you've addressed it other places, but since this is my time, I'm going to get to talk to you. What's the deal with the Soul Sides Collective out of Davis, Quantum, and mm -hmm. you? Is yeah. it like parallel thought or coincidence, or was there, well, like, how did you oh, guys no, both no, end I, up in the same kind of name? I, I straight I straight a bit the name off there. <laughs> um, and, and to be clear, their soul sides was spelled S O L D, yes. whereas mine is soul as in soul music. But right. um, I mean, Jeff Chang, uh, DJ Zen, who was one of the founding members and, and the original label head of Soul Sides uh, when it first launched in the mid '90s, um, I had become friends with him uh, during that time because uh, I was doing as a student at Berkeley. I was writing a paper on Asian Americans and hip hop, and Jeff was one of the kind of few people that was very prominent that I could, that um, I was able to interview. And that turned into, um, you know, a, a friendship and, and a mentorship. He was, I mean, the most important mentor for me, um, for a lot of ways. And so I basically got to see soul sides get started from the ground up. Sure. And, um, I always liked the name and originally my soul sides was just the name that I gave, um, to a subsection of my own website, which I got started sometime in the mid-late 1990s. Um, and it was just because I, I liked the name Soulside. I, I changed it from S-O-L-E to S-O-U-L. And, you know, if I'd known that it was going to blow up in the way that it did, I would have gone back to Jeff and the quantum guys <laughs> and be like, yo, is this cool that I'm, I basically did your name and gave it a little bit of a twist, but it's not like when I started soul sides as a subsection of my, of my website, that right. I ever imagined that it would become something notable or not. Um, and notably, uh, I don't think none of, none of the people in soul sides slash quantum ever came back to me and was like, dude, what's up? Um, and, <laughs> no, and, no indie and rap also, beef. The, the, right. The term soul sides too. That's just, I mean, that's just slang for a soul record. So it's right. not like their name was, you know, they, they're, they're taking that out of, um, out of the, 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 the air as well. I mean, there was an Art Farmer song called Soul Sides on one of his albums on Mainstream. So mm. I don't know. I have no idea if that is what inspired um, the record label. I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it did because that Art Farmer song is the kind of thing that they would have, like people like um, Shadow or Chief Excel probably would have had in their crates and were playing around with sample buys. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a nice lineage there, if you will. But yeah, it's not a coincidence. I mean, I was straight up 
completely inspired by the label Soul Sides, and yeah, just bit, bit the name. Cool. Okay, perfect. Oliver, so as we sort of uh, close out the segment here, um, and you know, your your work is very varied all over a bunch of different formats. Um, is there anything you're working on right now at the moment that you're excited about that you'd be willing to share? I'm sorry, so I, I missed the last part there. Is there any uh, projects that you're currently working on that you know, you're kind of stoked on that you're willing to share? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm really in between. Well, let me, sorry, let me try this again. I'm at the very early stages of a couple of things that could turn into something bigger or maybe it'll just be, end up being something small. Um, so, for example, um, I've been doing very slowly for the last couple of years interviews about Japanese-American car clubs in Southern California. Um, and this is part of a, a broader interest I've had around the role that Asian Americans have played in American culture. Uh, American car culture, um, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s being very aware of all the import uh, car racing clubs and, and that whole circuit. I mean, I was never involved as a racer. I, I never had my lowered Integra, but I was certainly <laughs> aware of it as a Asian American phenomenon. And what's striking is that even in 2018, no one has written a definitive book about this phenomenon. It's, mm. it, it is kind of, to me, a blind spot within Asian American studies, which I've complained about a lot over the years. <laughs> right. And yeah. a friend of mine, um, who's another academic, uh, uh, Hua Su, who's, who's at Vassar, and I'm sure no, no, no stranger to, to you all, Hua was saying, you know, instead of complaining about this, you realize you're in a position to go and do something about it <laughs> right. because you're an <laughs> academic and a journalist. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're, you're right. And so I started to, um, I started with my father-in-law him and his friends who grew up in the San Fernando Valley down here in Southern California, uh, they had a car club when they were all teenagers uh, going to high school. And the more people I talked to um, within that generation or, or friends of mine who had parents or other older relatives in that generation, the more I realized this was not an isolated thing. Um, much more recently, I interviewed someone who grew up in Long Beach, and he was in a racing club a street racing club in the late 1970s and early 80s. And so there are just multiple generations of different Asian Americans. I'm focusing specifically on Japanese Americans just because I usually like starting small. I like mm. beginning with something distinct. And then if it makes sense to, to expand out, then it's worth doing. But um, in the same way that it was in the Filipino American DJ book, I could have done a book that included also Chinese American mobile crews because those were in the Bay Area and there was a whole um, Latino mobile DJ right. scene and an mm -hmm. African American mobile DJ scene. But for me, I kind of like telling these relatively focused stories because it's, it's just easier to wrap your head around. And if you get too far out there, there's just too many moving parts. Um, and along those lines, the other project that I am beginning to do is around um, Asian Americans and food, and in particular, I'm very interested in second-generation Asian American restaurateurs, which means mm. people who, at, at minimum, they're the children of immigrants mm. who are now opening up their own restaurants, but I'm really, really interested in those who grew up with parents who ran restaurants mm. or ran grocery stores or farms, and their kids are now getting into food, but with a very different set of, you know, what we describe in sociology as cultural capital. Right. Kind of the um, hawker fair vibe. It. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, James is a great example of that. Uh, you know, down in Los Angeles, you have things like Night Market, which is a second generation Thai 
restaurant, you now have a wave of second generation Cambodian American donut shops, uh, right. donut shop operators, I mean. And I'm just, you know, for the for people of my parents, so I'm, I'm the child of immigrants, right? I'm second generation. Uh, my uncle, for example, ran a Chinese restaurant in a tiny town in Maine for 25 years. His interest in getting into food was not because he thought food was cool or because he was right. trying to elevate Chinese cuisine. Right. That was just about economic survival. Right. And a lot of that generation didn't, you know, they, they, they worked their asses off in kitchens so that their kids did not have to work their ass off in kitchens. Right. <laughs> and yet now, because food has become so much more powerful and important, this is what their kids want to do. It's that they want to open up their own, you know, pop-ups and, and, and trucks and brick-and-mortar restaurants. Um, but they're doing it in a different space, a different time, um, with a different set of skills than their parents did. And I'm kind of fascinated by this shift. And so um, I'm just, I'm working with um, a friend of mine who's a reporter at the LA Times, Frank Shong, and we're going to try to start the summer by going to different places and interviewing people just to kind of figure out what the they're there to, to this topic and to this story. So that's just two examples of stuff that I'm working on. And there's a lot of other small stuff that, I'm trying to finish up and kind of comes comes in and out. But those are the two bigger projects that may go someplace. Um, and we'll see if that's the case. Awesome. Awesome. As a you know, child of immigrants as well, I'm really excited and fascinated by it. So I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, uh, thank you again for your input and your time. And uh, for Damone and Nate and I, uh, immensely thank you for uh, being on the program. Thank you, Oliver. Hey, it's my pleasure, guys, and, and good luck with the with the podcast. Uh, it's funny, there was a, a while where myself, uh, Beth Wine from People in the Stairs we mentioned before, and DJ Patrick, um, who is um, a Chinese-American DJ, we had joked about starting up um, a podcast that we were going to call Dad Rap, um, because <laughs> all three of us, we all have kids kind of around the same age, uh, we're all interested in hip-hop, and, and we just never, you know, we never bothered to get it off the ground, but when I saw your podcast. I'm like, yo, someone took our ideas. <laughs> oh. Right. And only, only one of got, us have kids, got. so it, it makes no sense. But we, we really appreciate oh, your time and everybody go out and subscribe to uh, Heat Rock's amazing, amazing podcast that we we all love. Shout out to soulsides.com as well. That's spelled S-O-U-L dash sides.com. That's O-Dub's uh, audio blog. And uh, thank you again, guys. Hey, appreciate it, man. All right. Talk Peace. soon. All right. Take care. And a one and a two. We want to thank you for listening to another dope episode of the Dad Bod Rap Pod. More fly conversation and interviews coming your way every week. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash dadbodrappod. And we're always down to interact with you on Twitter at dadbodrappod, all spelled out. Subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes.